Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. Three months ago, on January 12, Chinese researchers publicly shared the genetic sequence of the virus that causes COVID-19. That started a race to create diagnostics, therapies, and vaccines. The scale and speed of the response has been astounding. Work that usually would have taken a year has been accomplished in weeks. Scientific approaches that just a few years ago seemed far-fetched are being tested in patients. Over 125 therapies and vaccines are in clinical trials for COVID-19, and over 100 more are under development. Details about trials and the development of medical products for the pandemic are available at BioCentury's free COVID-19 portal, biocentury.com backslash coronavirus. To discuss the latest developments, I'm joined by four BioCentury editors who have been interviewing leading scientists, policymakers, and industry leaders around the world from the start of the crisis. I'd like to start by asking each of you to introduce yourselves and say something about the kinds of stories that you've been writing about COVID-19. Karen? My name is Karen Tkach Tesman, and I had a preclinical coverage for BioCentury. And in the last few weeks, a lot of that has taken the form of coverage on the diagnostic space, um, looking into both the technical details of what's going on for diagnostic uh, testing, that's the molecular PCR test for COVID-19, as well as the serological tests that give you a different kind of information that uh, doesn't get used for diagnostics, but uh, could guide some very important decisions in the future. So I've been digging into the technological and policy aspects of that. Uh, Lauren? I'm Lauren Martz. I am head of translation and clinical development at BioCentury. And my recent coverage has focused on a lot on the master protocol model for clinical trials that's um, that's being adopted for different types of therapies and vaccines across the COVID-19 development space. And uh, it's becoming an alternative to some of the smaller independent trials that are running. Selena? I'm Selena. I'm an executive editor for BioCentury. So I've been covering um, clinical trials for COVID-19 countermeasures and also how other clinical trials are being impacted by this outbreak. Um, my most you know, recent story was about um, the repurposed agents that are getting close to reading out. Simone? Hello, I'm Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief at BioCentury. I've been heading up the creation of BioCentury's portal which uh, contains free access, open access information for the biomedical community, in fact, for everybody, with a a huge amount of vaccines, therapies, clinical trials. We are putting this in the public domain as a service. I have been talking round the clock with industry leaders on the kind of information that they will need and the kind of activities that are going on in industry. Um, I do invite all of our listeners to visit our portal. So, so I wanted to start with, uh, with Karen. Um, as, as you mentioned, you've been reporting recently by, about diagnostic tests. Really, physicians, policymakers, you know, they're forced to fight in the dark without, um, without diagnostic tests. But tests have to be fit for purpose. They, they, have to, they have to work. And you've written recently about antibody tests to de- that are used to determine if someone has been affected, has been infected. Can you talk a little bit about why antibody tests are important and why they're challenging to develop? Sure. 
So antibody tests give you a readout of if a patient has antibodies that recognize COVID-19 epitopes, so epitopes on the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. And this is something that's different from just measuring the presence of the virus itself. Uh, those tests um, can rely on unique aspects of the virus that while there's some degree of mutation, tend to stay the same, um, largely stay the same across people. Antibody responses are highly variable. And so the, in order to make sure that your test can actually capture antibody responses in a wide range of people, you need to be testing it on a really wide range of varied samples, large sets of samples. And making those samples available is going to be really crucial to making sure that we get tests that we know that work. And the reason it's so important to stringently validate these tests is while they're not being used to diagnose people to tell you if you have an active COVID-19 infection or not, there's a lot of talk of using them to determine who is safe to go back to work, who's had some exposure and developed some immunity. There's even talk of national registries or of employers conducting testing. And so if decisions that affect people's livelihoods, that affect the decision of whether someone will step out and rejoin their workforce are being made, uh, they really must be made on tests that we have the highest amount of confidence in possible. So, so how is FDA regulating these tests? And there's, there's already talk about millions of these tests being available. Are the tests that are out there now reliable, something that people could make decisions about whether they're safe to go to work or even if they're safe to be around, I don't know, their elderly relatives, things like that? So what FDA has done is it has said that um, because serological tests are not being used for diagnosis and they're not being used, um, and they are what less complex of a test than the test being used for diagnosis, as long as a company notifies FDA about their tests and makes disclaimers in uh, the packaging of the test that this has not been reviewed by FDA um, and that it's not used for diagnosis, they can sell a test right now. And the, importantly, the company has to have provided its own validation studies, uh, but there isn't right now FDA reviewing those studies and saying, yes, that's a big enough study. Yes, that's a high enough accuracy. There is, you know, some information about sensitivity and specificity of tests that is being included in, uh, that FDA recommends be included in the, uh, the package inserts. But right now that there is not an FDA filter on these tests. And, you know, as far as making decisions based on these tests right now, I think that it, it's a it's a tough call. I think that perhaps repeat testing or testing with multiple platforms will give us some sense of confidence. I think that the biggest confidence uh, will come from some of the centralized efforts we're seeing from N NIH, uh, from spearheaded by NCI actually, in the U.S. and uh, some other efforts at Oxford in the U.K. for example, and some studies that are coming out. There's one on MedArchive today. There is a push to kind of compare these tests head to head on the same samples to get more uh, validation on them. And so I think that these efforts are going, to, these studies that are coming out, and these centralized efforts are going to be really critical for uh, giving us confidence in which tests to use. So, so I want to turn to, to Lauren and the story that you've written recently, or a couple of stories about 
master protocols because it it's, seems to me that all of us have seen examples where things seem to be very promising for any number of diseases, not just in the COVID-19 pandemic. And then when rigorously tested, they turn out to not be what people have hoped that they were going to be. Master protocols seem to be one of the, the more promising ways to get to those results, to get to that base truth about whether things are effective or aren't effective efficiently. Can you talk a little bit about what master protocols are and what master protocols have been started for COVID-19 therapies and vaccines? Sure. So master protocols are any trial that has an overarching protocol, uh, set of protocols and an overarching set of endpoints that looks at potentially multiple patient groups or in the case of COVID-19, these usually, these are adaptive trials that are looking across multiple therapeutics. So the goal here is to put all of the therapeutics into one bucket and to test them consistently across patients. And the, the benefits that you get from that are, are that you have these trials up and running and sort of ready and waiting for when you have a, a therapeutic that, that becomes ready to be tested in the clinic. Um, they they have a shared control arm, so you're putting less patients into the, the control standard of care and more patients are getting the drugs. And you're also lining these therapies up side by side. So you have a, a good indication of which will work, which of, of these sets will work best in, in these patient groups. So we've seen at least five master protocol adaptive trials for therapeutics. Um, the World Health Organization was one of the first to come out with, with their solidarity trial, and, and we've seen a few others that are, are more localized to certain countries. Um, most of the trials are looking at repurposed drugs at this time, but the NIH's trial has is looking at a few that have not been approved for other indications. Um, and beyond that, we're also seeing, uh, we've also seen a master protocol trial for vaccines that the World Health Organization came out with last week. So, so you mentioned repurposed trials, and that's a good segue um, to, to Selena. You, you've been looking at the kind of the schedule of uh, testing of repurposed uh, drugs. Those are drugs that are approved for one indication and hopefully could um, work for COVID-19 and also repositioned drugs. Those are, I guess, unapproved drugs that um, have been developed originally for other indications and now there's a there's also a hope that they could be used for COVID-19. Can you talk about the, the timeline when we might um, start seeing results from some of these um, repurposed and um, repositioned drugs? Well, we've started seeing some results already. They've been trickling in. We've seen chloroquine data, remdesivir data, and um, there's a bunch of stories, studies in the literature. Um, you know, as as Lauren pointed out the the need for master protocols is is great right now. Not that many, not that many of the repurposed and repositioned agents are in master protocols. So we're seeing lots of small studies getting published, which each have their own procedures and endpoints. So it's been a little challenging to evaluate them, especially because most of them don't have control arms. But it looks like we're headed into a phase now where that trickle is going to turn into a flood of results. I think we found something like 50, over 50 agents in trials right now are 
will likely read out by this summer. Many of them have primary, primary completion dates by the end of June. And I think, I think the good thing about these trials is that many of them are testing the same agents. So we see remdesivir in at least five trials and a dozen other antivirals, a bunch of immunomodulators, some acting more as immunosuppressants, some acting more as augmenters of the immune response. But many groups are testing the very same agents in different trials. So at least we'll get to see if things kind of look the same from small trial to small trial, even if they're not designed exactly the same way and they don't all have control arms. Simone, you, you've written about collaboration between pharma companies and uh, biotech companies. You, you wrote a story and you said that it's the the biggest scale of industrial collaboration that's happened since the Second World War. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration and um, how it's come about and where it might be going? So there is in fact a huge amount of activity going on currently behind the scenes. Some of it is in front of the scenes. We've heard and written about a couple of collaborations. For example, Novartis has one going on there's Gates Foundation involved. There are also the major pharmaceutical companies are getting together. Behind the scenes at the moment, they are really motivated to remove all of the barriers that normally get in the way. One of the things that triggered this, in addition obviously to the urgency of COVID-19, is some of the things that we're hearing on the contributions from Selena and, and Lauren, of course, where there are actually a large number of companies going out and doing studies. And one of the things that they want to ensure is that there isn't duplication, there isn't redundancy, that studies are done well, that you're actually able at the end of this to, or even before the end of this, to to come out with meaningful statements, well-designed studies about which molecules work and don't. And so their efforts are really designed at streamlining this, at selecting molecules, with a good rationale for studying, at putting them into the right kinds of studies. This includes vaccines, it includes therapies. In parallel, I have heard that there is a huge effort going on among the manufacturing heads of these companies as well. The consensus seems to be that no single company is going to be able to manufacture either a compound or a vaccine at the scale that might be needed if it does work. This isn't an effort just to get one, figure out which one drug works or which one vaccine works and then we're done. This is obviously going to be an ongoing activity. And so part of the idea is to set up systems and protocols that will be lasting. The the farmers seem to be working along the notion, which is the conservative one and the general consensus that there may be a second wave, there may even be a third wave. So this isn't something that we just want to get something in by the summer and know what happens and then we're all done. Something that is taking into account the need not only to put repurposed drugs in now, but also to foster innovation. The remdesivir, I think we should all remember, was actually created, designed initially for Ebola, um, where it actually didn't work. And so it's now emerging as the front runner, I think, at the moment, we could say, for COVID-19. So there's a tremendous feeling that we need to understand the biology, we need to triage molecules that have the highest probability of success, but also foster innovation, enable biotechs to bring their molecules forward and be properly and adequately tested. 
Well, thanks. That, that's all the time that we've got today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for me, Steve Osden, and from our editors, Karen, Selena, Lauren, and Simone. Until our next podcast, you can keep up with BioCentury's reporting about COVID-19 at biocentury.com backslash coronavirus. This podcast is called BioCentury This Week, so I guess you know when the next one's going to be released.